You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to another episode of The Spear. My guest on this episode is CW5 Joe Rowland. Joe, thanks so much for, for joining me for this episode. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you are an Army aviator, uh, CW5 warrant officer. Um, you fly, I guess, uh, Blackhawks. But can you talk a little bit about what your job is now? You're at West Point here. Uh, yeah. So right now I'm the commander of the 2nd Aviation Flight Detachment, which supports uh, the superintendent, the USMA staff, the jump team. Uh, so Big Army decided that it was a good idea uh, decades ago to put an aviation attachment out here at West Point. And I'm just you know, privileged to be able to command a group of about 14 individuals here out at Stewart, uh, Stewart Airport, or I call it FOB West Point. So <laughs> West Point. Yeah. Uh, so you're actually based at Stewart. Yes. I live on West Point, um, which which is awesome. And that's part of the, the kind of draw to get me to take this command. But yeah, we actually work out here. So the hangar facilities are out here, all the aircraft, all the maintenance right at the airport. Yep. Okay. And for, for listeners who have not been to West Point, uh, that's an airport, what, about 30 minutes drive, say, north of West Point? Yeah. So about 25, 30 minutes over, over the mountain, just off the Hudson. It's an international airport. Our facility, we, uh, we lease out the other side of a pretty massive hangar complex to the New York State Police. So it's always nice to have them around too. And yeah. they have their aviation attachment out here also. Okay. And you mentioned a couple of the things that you did. This is another thing that for listeners who um, who maybe aren't familiar or haven't spent a lot of time at West Point, it kind of seems like you're already always hearing, you know, or fairly regularly hearing rotors because there's a lot of stuff that's going on with uh, helicopters flying. Obviously, when there are distinguished visitors that fly into Stewart, uh, they've yeah. got to be moved down to West Point. Uh, the superintendent, uh, you know, moves around by helicopter sometimes. Uh, the parachute team, which is which is always kind of cool because you walk out and the plane right on the center of sort of campus yeah. and there's helicopters flying around and cadets just jumping one after another over and over all afternoon. Yeah, so we provide that jump team with a, a platform on a on a regular basis. So. Some of these cadets are leaving the academy with you know upwards of 900 jumps, which is like unheard of anywhere yeah. else to be able to do that. So yeah, we're they're fully integrated into our our formation and we into theirs. Uh, it's a great relationship. My guys love doing it, and uh, yeah, it's always kind of nice going into the plane. Yeah, you guys down there playing volleyball or whatever, and you know every once in a while when the baseball team's going, there's been a couple home runs that I think I blasted out that I was worried that may 
reach out and touch the aircraft when we come <laughs> in by the library. So, yeah. What uh, what kind of aircraft? You said you have 14 people. What kind of aircraft do you fly? That's the uh, uh, Lakota aircraft. So it's really the Army's primary training aircraft, uh, twin engine, but it's the uh, Lakota. And the National Guard uses it, and we use it for TDA assignments, uh, things like that. Yeah. But okay. my background is in the UH, thousands of hours in the UH-60, and then uh, I had to go through a transition to be able to fly this aircraft to come up and take the command. Yeah, so we're going to talk about a, a story from 2004 in Afghanistan, but I kind of want to uh, ask you first a little bit about your background. What brought you into the Army, and you know, did you did you come in knowing, hey, I want to fly helicopters? Uh, well, I came in the Army knowing that, only because I started. So I've been doing this for 34 years, so uh, 100% of my adult life, using 20 as the start of adulthood, I guess, I've been in some type of military service. So the first six years... Uh, with the United States Marine Corps, and I was a crew chief. So, I, you know, I got in, flew helicopter. I didn't really fly them, but back in the day, you could get up front with some of the pilots. And I, I knew I wanted to be a pilot. My whole family's aviators. My dad was a Korea War fighter pilot oh, in the wow. United States Marine Corps. My brother, uh, who flies for JetBlue right now, is was an F-18 driver for the Navy. Um, I'm the only rotor head in the family, but it's much more complicated to fly a, a helicopter than it is a jet. <laughs> um, but... I, I, so I was in the Marine Corps and I knew I wanted to be a pilot. And so I put in an application. Uh, it was kind of like the green to gold for the, the Marine Corps. And the sure. response back was, it really don't have any aviation slots available, but you can go and open contract. Well, my gunnery sergeant at the time was pretty smart. He's like, hey, Joe, Sergeant Roland, if you do that, you could be a quartermaster officer. Not taking anything away from quartermaster officers, but... That's not what I was looking to do. Sure. So he said, hey, the Army's got this warrant officer program, and they'll basically take anybody. You know, I, all you have to do is be a high school graduate, pass some tests, um, and then they'll take you to be an Army helicopter pilot. You can do that for the rest of your career. And I was like, that sounds pretty good. And I went and talked to a recruiter who knew nothing about the program. But as a NCO myself in the Marines, I kind of fumbled my way through that, put the application in, and then was accepted. And that was... Oops. 28 years ago. Is yeah. it difficult to change services? I mean, you know, we talk about, obviously there's a, there's sort of a military culture generally, but every branch has its own culture and you sort of start to identify that once you've been in for a little while. Was it, was it a difficult decision to make? No, cause I knew that I was going to, I knew early on that being a part of a team, being in the military was something that I was going to, that grass was the greenest grass. There was no other side of the fence for me okay. even at a young age. So I knew I wanted to, stay in it, but I knew I wanted to do other things and grab more responsibility. And I thought, you know, due to the fact that my father and my brother and everybody else was doing that. And I had some flight time in the Marine Corps, you know, they'd put you up front and I kind of, I knew I kind of liked it. And that's where I wanted to start and build a career off that. And um, I remember seeing my old squadron in Afghanistan and of course, none of the guys when I was in that squadron were, were there, but we, we traded stories, we traded patches and things like that. So I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I went through the process. And then for somebody coming out of the Marine Corps to go in the Army, it was literally I showed up at Fort Rucker. Uh, all I had was my Marine uniforms and I literally had to march myself down to a clothing sales and buy a <laughs> bunch of stuff. Right. And there's plenty of funny stories about me going through uh, Warren Officer Canada School. You know, like the first day I was there. Um, Captain Moon was the walk commander, came upstairs and 
I knew I'd been briefed. I read up on what I was supposed to do as a kind of a newbie coming in. So I called attention on deck. He took like three steps, turned around and he's like, deck, are you my Marine? And then, you know, I kind of, at that point I was in the sand pit about every day, every other hour, <laughs> digging holes and stuff like that. But, yeah. <laughs> All right. So you, you get into the army. Did you, was, was the UH-60, was the Blackhawk your choice or was that what you just ended up flying? No. So that, so actually that was my choice. So I graduated, uh, the top of my class. So the top three individuals in my class were able to kind of select the aircraft. And, you know, I talked to a bunch of different folks. I remember calling my dad and it basically boiled down to, uh, you know, what aircraft had a, had a mission all the time. Now the Apache guys and taking nothing away from any of my Apache brothers and sisters out there. Cause that mission is awesome. Um, but for me, it was, you know, you're, you can be moving people, you can be doing air assaults, you can be putting out fires, you can be hoisting people out of, out of the jungle, fries, missions, uh, stable missions, all that stuff was, you could do that on a daily basis. That was your actual mission. So that kind of drove me to, you know, I had the biggest scope for missions out there. And that's why I selected the UH-60. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about this deployment then, 2004. And I think you said it was it, it was your first operational deployment? Yes. Yeah. And how long had you been in the Army by that time? And so 2004, was, well, like a little, uh, about 12 years, 10 years, 10 to 12. Okay. Yes, and then, yeah. Okay. So this is 2004. About what time of year did you get in country? We went in in January. The reason I remember the exact date is because it was like a full year of tax-free money. That was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. So it was like a full, for the IRS, I was, that was good for that. But we got in in January. Yep. Okay. And what did you deploy? Were you part of a cab? What were you part of? What sort of unit? Yeah. So the, yeah, the 25th cab was deployed to Afghanistan. We had both sectors of Northern Afghanistan and then Southern Afghanistan. So we split into two task forces. The brigade headquarters was up North and then um, the assault battalion with uh, Apache company and a National Guard Chinook company were stationed down in Kandahar in southern Afghanistan. Yep. Okay. The, the nice thing about it, we may have a chance to talk about it, was, you know, we didn't have a lot of assets in Afghanistan back in 2004, but we were sure. probably just as effective as having three-plus cabs in Afghanistan later on. Why is that? Because we're just focused. There was no, you know, I'll just throw some stuff out there. There was no ice rink in Kandahar. There was probably yeah. fifty five hundred people total on Kandahar when we got there, and everybody wow. was everybody had a mission, right? There was no strap hangers. Uh, KBR hadn't really come in yet and started putting a bunch of stuff together. Um, so it was like every single day it was get up, do missions, come back, work out, eat, sleep, and then go back out and do it again. So there was no other distractors. I don't think we had a green bean coffee yeah. in two thousand four, but you know what? Nobody really cared. Because you I mean you were smoked at the end of every day, just Did tired. We, anybody who's been to Kandahar Airfield uh, more recently, I was there in 2011 to 2012, um, br very briefly. I was there in 2012 too. Yeah, yeah, that was my last appointment. You, you remember the the ice rink and the Tim Hortons? Yeah. And this sounds like we're blaming the Canadians, but no, we're not. When the Americans were just as guilty or more guilty of doing it. It just happened that that's where the Canadians built up their infrastructure. I couldn't agree with you any more than that. What blew me away in 2012 when it went over for the PDSS at that point, when I went back on my last appointment there, I was the command chief warrant officer of the 25th cab. So uh, my battalion commander back in 
four ended up being my brigade commander in 2012. So okay. we, had, we had been together the whole time. He had been doing other jobs. I'd been in and around uh, Hawaii the whole time serving in that cab. But we went over there and it, they had just done a, like a health and welfare check around Kandahar. And I think it was like 470 people were there that didn't really have a job. Yeah. They were just kind of just hanging out there. I was blown away by that. I mean, that was like, wow. that would have been a quarter of the force when we first got in there in 2004. Wow. Okay. So you've got, um, so you get into country January, 2004 and what's the mission? Are you aligned with, um, you know, are you in support of specific ground units? Yeah. So when we first got there, um, basically it was, we, we worked with some of the 82nd guys and then we spent a lot of time in Southern Afghanistan, Kandahar, uh, working with task force 31, the desert Eagles. So that was an ODA detachment that was responsible for that sector. So we provided them security lift, um, resupply. Uh, we hadn't really ventured outside of Kandahar too much in 2004. One of the things I wrote down when I was just kind of thinking this through was basically the, the unit that we ripped in with relieved the place um, kind of stuck to about a hundred 120 mile combat radius in and around Kandahar. Well, the enemy quickly caught on to that's about as far reach as you can get. So um, one of the, one of the first things we did was we jumped a farp out and uh, we were Where? immediately. Yeah. Just, so just uh, North and in, in Kalat. Okay. North of, yep. North of Kandahar. And uh, I just, I'll never forget our XO kind of freaking out that he was going to drive you know, he was going to be in charge of a 16 person or 16 vehicle convoy to put out a FARP out there so we could, you know, extend our reach. When we did that, we were immediately successful um, in attriting some of the enemy that was out there. They just weren't used to seeing us out there. Um, so, that, you know, that was one of the one of the tactics that we used that 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 I highlighted that was super successful, and we continued to move that FARP around so that we had a, a better reach. Because they had some freedom to maneuver between us down south and in the in the headquarters up north, so there's that in between zone that nobody could really reach unless you put out a jump farp or uh, you know had tank birds, which we weren't really flying in in, in theater at the time. So they, they kind of knew where they could they could operate in and out of and feel pretty comfortable. We just made them uncomfortable by moving a farp. Just that simple. So the FARP for listeners that yeah. aren't aware, for is it so forward? forward arming refuel points so that we arm aircraft, we refuel aircraft. Yeah. And how you know how how much how much effort goes into establishing one of those? And then you said you could move it. Is that something you can do as simply as like jumping talk, or is that a multi-day effort or even longer? No, so I mean, you can do it if if you trained it well. But so you got to put security out there. Obviously, that was our biggest concern. There was a, a base out there, so there was uh, coalition forces that were already located there and then the spot had a landing zone in there with heavy river rocks that would, would have kept the dust down. So um, it wasn't like we were doing a c complete jump for like at the national training center where you're just rolling out maybe two security vehicles, a Hemet, and you're just plopping it out there. Guys come in and land in that Hemet and the two security vehicles drive off to another location, uh, which is completely possible also. But we were obviously worried about, you know, just security because we, we didn't have a, a lot of intelligence on that area just yet. So, you know, falling in on what was already a base there with coalition forces, um, they were able to provide the security for us. And then from there, we just, like I said, we just opened up our reach 
in southern Afghanistan to a point where um, we kind of disrupted what was normal activity uh, for the Taliban out there. Okay. So we're going to talk about, um, I guess, one day. When, when during the deployment was this? This was in April. So okay, not so too long after you've been there. So, yeah, if, if I was ever to choose, I'm not part of the patch chart senior leadership that does patch charts. But there's to me, there's optimal times to move into a theater, especially if, if one like that, where there's a fighting season. Mm-hmm. So for us, just by pure luck, we, you know, we deployed in January, which, which wasn't the fighting season for them because the mountains and stuff in the, in the heavy winter. But that gave us about two, three months where we could get our tactics right, get our flying skills right, train I mean, a little bit differently than we've been training in the past. Um, and then you're boom, you're right into fighting season. You know, there's been I've been in units. I've been in this cab when we've actually deployed right in the middle of fighting season, which you don't have any. There's no spin up time like you're in it and you're trying to get your right seat, left seat rides complete. Um, make sure that you're getting the you're getting the all the current tactics, but you're, there's missions going on constantly. So we had a little bit of time to ramp up, but come April when the snow started melting and people started moving in uh, from Pakistan and the Taliban felt comfortable that they can move around. We were, we were pretty trained up at that point. We felt pretty comfortable flying. Okay. In that environment. Yep. So in April then, uh, You've been in country, as you said, a few months, and you were on this particular day, I guess, flying in support of the the uh, soft guys on the ground? Yes. So okay. we had, yeah, so the mission package for that day, we'd already had this, the FARC was established. It was two Blackhawks and two Apache helicopters. Um, and my Blackhawk was my battalion commander up front, two really good crew chiefs, and just three personnel in the back. One ODA, so it was really uh, Eagle 7, the ODA um, senior NCO with uh, two Afghani uh, soldiers. He was the Overwatch sniper setup. And then behind me in, in shock two was the company commander. And I think we had a package of eight, uh, eight soft in the back of his aircraft. So that was kind of the support aircraft so the idea was if we went out and found this we would put uh tim up in an overwatch position with the two a and eight uh soldiers and then we would be able to move the kind of assault force wherever we needed them and then the two apaches providing security and so we were kind of set for we had some intelligence on some of the valleys that they may be in and we took off and we were just out looking around just kind of reconning we had the apaches one kind of stayed with it, with us and one was not too far away. Obviously, we're in radio contact, but was out kind of using some optics and some of the sensors that he has, kind of looking out forward, seeing if there was anything out there that would uh, raise any hackles. We didn't really have any other assets, no RC-12 support or anybody like, like kind of pinging cell phones. Uh, we just had a general area where we thought um, through some of the local nationals and some intelligence that the ODA team members got where they may be. So we had already completed one FARP. So we had all gone into the FARP, come back out. And I think we're about an hour into it. And the battalion commander made a decision that, Hey, we're going to send the two Apaches back to the FARP to gas off. Cause we want to be, we want to have eyes on the area or continue to recon 
with somebody out there, a team of two. We never flew single ship. So he made the decision, sent the two Apaches back so we can get off cycle on gas a little bit. So we always had somebody out on on the battle or out on the AO just searching. Okay. Well, as soon as he did that and they got to the FARP, we went around a corner and then we, we found the jackpot area, right? So we, we found uh, probably about start off with about 20 individuals um, just kind of running around and we were trying to assess the situation. Uh, the ODA commander in the back uh, was, you know, we picked up an altitude a little bit, just to give him better visual. Um, and it looked like it was meeting all the criteria. It was all, you know, we talk, we talk about military age males, but they're all wearing the same outfit um, and they were all armed. So we immediately say, hey, we're, we're going to watch this position uh, and it will hold the, the team wanted to be held in, in the air to assess, but uh, my my sniper in the back wanted to be put up in an overwatch position, kind of looking down on this small collot, about four or five buildings. Okay. Um, once we showed up and went around the corner, they all kind of scattered and ran into the, into the building. So nobody was like running free. So we kind of had them in an area. We immediately called the Apaches back and say, "Hey, as soon as you get back out here, we need you to get back out here." Uh, so we picked a pretty good spot to put, uh, the sniper and his team members and our, you know, we PCC and PCI pre-combat check inspect everything before we left. And normally Tim would be in the back with a Peltor headset on, you know, his Kevlar with the Peltor and he had two plugs. One, he could be up on the combat net and then, or the ground net or air battle net. And the other one, he would just plug right into the aircraft so he could just talk to us on internal. But that connection was jacked. So he said, listen, I, you know, this is flying out there. I can just put on your David Clark, which is the headset that the boss has actually got a nicer one than that. But, you know, David Clark's a normal headset you see people flying with. So he put the David Clark on, plugged in. If he needed to talk to the team members in the back or he needed to talk to anybody on the ground or anybody else, we could just switch him up on our radios. So here he is. He's got a David Clark headset on. He's plugged into the aircraft. Uh, we go into land and and people start running between the buildings. So everything got kind of amped up a little bit. So, I mean, it, it didn't take very long to do it. It just seemed like it was, it was taking a little, taking a little bit longer than it needed to. And he, he's in the back saying, Hey Joe, just put me down. There's a rock formation right here. Put me down there. I'll get in between the rocks and I'll, I'll have good visual on this area. And about, about how far from the, from the collat structure is that? We were probably about 250 meters kind of up the hill a little bit. There was a big wadi between where we were putting Tim and his guys and in a pretty deep wadi, about a 14-foot deep wadi, probably about 30, 40 feet wide. And then the on the on the far side, which would have been the eastern side, was the were the buildings. So we felt pretty comfortable where we were going to put them. He had a lot of uh, cover and concealment. Um, and so we dropped him off and he got out. And as soon as I took off, it was kind of like a one tire approach to some rocks. He was able, he and the two A and A were able to get out the left side of the aircraft immediately get in between the rocks to provide cover. What does that it's, mean? A one tire approach. So like coming in, there's no flat place to land. So you come in and you, you just put one tire down and you just hold the aircraft up with the, with your power, with the collective. And so just, a, just a tire sitting on top of a rock. And he's able to get out the side and, and jump down to where he needs to go. So there was no spot because it's a mount, it's mountainous terrain. Yeah, there was no flat area anywhere near there where we could land all three wheels and drop him off. 
Okay. So we did that quite a bit. You know, in the wintertime, sometimes it would be a no-tire approach. We'd hover the aircraft, you know, less than a foot off the ground, and they would just step out of the aircraft onto where they needed to go. Yeah, is that something that. that you that you train a lot before deployment, or is it something that is like a, an SOP that kind of or a TTP that you develop because of this terrain? So before we left, even though we we're in Hawaii and we had some mountainous terrain, we did a lot of mountain training while we we're out there. We didn't have some of the the steep uh, terrain that was associated with Afghanistan. We had the altitudes uh, associated with uh, with Afghanistan where we were training, which was good for the aircraft flies a little bit differently uh, mm -hmm. in high altitude environments, a lot less. Uh, performance in high altitude environments, but some of those we didn't, but we immediately, when we got to theater, you know, during that two month transition, we found, you know, we flew in the train. So we were like, Hey, we're going to have to land here at some point. So let's do a deliberate training where guys are comfortable, as comfortable as you can be in the middle of the night, sometimes with goggles on landing with one tire on the, on the side of a mountain where you don't have a lot of, a lot of clearance with the rotor system and, it's, it's a lot more complicated, but we luckily, like I, I talked about a little bit earlier, we had the ability in that two months before fighting season to get our guys proficient in that. Okay. So I was, I was happy for that because there was, you know, more than one occasion based on where the enemy was, where we wanted to put our friendly forces to give them a position of advantage. Sometimes it required us to land in what would normally be like, that's a no-go landing zone, right? Uh, back sure. home. So, yeah, we, we dropped him off, and so he, he jumped out, the two A&A jumped out, and I immediately took off, and I kind of turned back towards the clot in the wadi, and as I was transitioning over the wadi, uh, my right uh, door gunner at the time, Specialist Morales, who's now at CW3, so I'm getting really old, <laughs> looked out, and he says, sir, there's two guys in that wadi with weapons. And I, I, I was trying to look out the right – side but i was in the left seat and i was like holy crap and i we spun one more time around and what was basically happening and i called tim on the radio of course he's not answering me because he left his comp package sitting in my aircraft he's got his radio with him but his peltor helmet and all that is sitting in the in the back of my black hawk uh one had an ak-47 one had a pkm machine gun they they knew exactly where we had just dropped these two off and um, as I'm calling to Tim, my left crew chief tells me, Hey, sir, he, his headset's in the aircraft. So when I spun around, they were moving themselves to a position where if Tim came down that hill at all, he was going to be staring right at two guys with a, with machine guns. So the best thing I could do was just get my aircraft between him and these two cats and We'll talk. I'll, I'll mention it now, just the way we used to do aerial door gunnery, right? Just the way my brain was focused was I literally stopped my helicopter at a 50 foot hover. And then I would never do that ever again. Right. So and we'll talk about why I would never have to do that again, but I literally just parked my helicopter because he wasn't listening and he was walking towards what was an ambush. Um, and then we just started engaging the, the two individuals in the Wadi, then people started pouring out of the uh, pouring out of the buildings. Um, my aircraft got shot up, and uh, there's just a lot of craziness. So literally, my commander, who I love to death, right, was a great tactical commander, was shooting his nine millimeter. Right, we're, we're about a hundred yards from these two guys that are in this body. Luckily, the my crew chief was able to 
kill the person with a PK machine gun immediately. So we kind of replayed it in our heads what happened. Because had, had that weapon been deployed, it would have been probably pretty awful for the aircraft itself. But what kind of they, what kind of weapons do you have on each door? So the, at the time back then it was M60 machine guns. So okay. shooting a 7.62. So we were taking fire and then uh my crew chief would yell out that he was going Winchester, which is our pro word that he's running out of ammo. So I would literally just spin the aircraft, you know, using the pedals and just spun it around to the other door gunner could shoot and then just kept doing that. And then as the guys were coming out of buildings with weapons, they met all the criteria. Um, and it, it just turned into like a melee. And then my, my wingman is up top and his, his door gunners are, are, firing at the folks coming out of the buildings. We found out later that all the, all the guys, all the ODA team members in the back were shooting too. I mean, my aircraft sustained <laughs> significant damage. When we came back uh, to Kandahar, we noticed that there was about 10 bullet holes in, on the other side of his blades. With the door guns in the 60, there's a penal stop. So I can't literally take the machine gun and shoot my rotor blades off. Mm -hmm. But what doesn't have a penal stop is the, eight guys in the back of the helicopter <laughs> and I get it. I mean, it was, it turned into a, a fur ball pretty quickly. Um, the Apaches were coming in and they're in their calling. So I'll go back to a little bit what my commander was doing, which was just, was craziness. So I didn't, I couldn't hear I me. Mean, I, I mean, everything was, the radios were going off. Um, then all of a sudden, I mean, my caution advisory panel just blew up with a bunch of caution lights. Um, the KY 58, which is our secure, it's how we secure our radio calls. It kicked offline. So it's just beep, 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 beep. So my brain was like inundated with all this stuff going on. And I felt something burn in my neck. And for a second, I thought I'd been shot. But what it was, was a piece of hot brass coming out of his nine millimeter that when it shot, the brass ended up inside my collar. Of, and then it just dawned on me. I'm like, he is literally shooting a nine millimeter out of little window on the right side of the aircraft. And uh, he's like, Joe, I need more ammo. And I was like, all right. I mean, I, I can't tell you what I actually said in the cockpit to my commander, but it was pretty, <laughs> it was brutally honest on what I thought he was doing at the time. Um, so he was, he was wrapped up in that, which in itself was, you know, lesson learned, right? And he had kind of ceased to be a part of the front seat part of the crew. Sure. The backseaters were doing a great job. Um, but one of the things we had to, I had to do was reset my generators. So, you know, I'm flying in the left seat. My, my right hand is on my cyclic, which controls, you know, the pitch axis of my helicopter. And one of those eight lights that was on in front of me was kind of a trim and a sass light, and which I, I mean, I couldn't tell. I knew the aircraft was flying. I could look at the engine instruments. I knew my hydraulic system had been hit, but I have three of them. So I was in my head. I was, I was okay with that. I just need to get rid of the noise. So I, so we're about a 50 to 70 foot hover. Again, I'll never do that again. Uh, but I took my hand off the controls because I have a trim on my flight controls that if I let go of them, they're not just going to fall forward or back or left or right. But what I didn't see in there was that trim was gone. And I took my hands off the controls and reached up to reset the generators because my boss is fully involved in trying to kill enemy with a nine millimeter while we're shooting an M60 out the door. And my aircraft went from a hovering attitude to about a 120 knot attitude in one second. I mean, so I was, had I been lower to the ground, I would have probably flown it right into the ground because just the, again, the cyclic just kind of fell forward and 
that got everybody's attention. The backseaters, the front seat, my commander was like, hey, Joe, what's going on? I'm like, hey, welcome to the party. The aircraft's been hit. We need to figure this out. Um, and by that time, within three minutes of that, the Apache showed up. Okay. So um, at that point, my two backseaters and, and my wingman had probably taken care of eight of the many folks that were out there. Uh, Tim, we picked him up and got him in. He put his helmet back on and like WTF is what he said to me. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> back, back at you, brother, man, we, we trained this. Why did you leave without your helmet? And then, uh, he, he actually got a silver star that day because he continued to fight his way across the water. We put the Apaches in there, um, started to attract some of the buildings that were there. And then he moved in with his two A and A folks, and then the rest of the eight man detachment, and cleared all those buildings out. And it was actually the team that we were looking for um, through intelligence, because right. you know two of the guys got brought back to be questioned and stuff like that. So I mean, it literally went from hey, you guys go get some gas, and we're just going to fly down this other valley to holy crap, which has all happened in a, in a matter of seconds. So. You know, some of the lessons learned when we did aerial gunnery that up to that point, you know, there was like five different tables or seven different tables you would do. And then we did hovering fire and then running fire really slow. That's not the way our door gunners are going to shoot that weapon. So we immediately changed our test fire procedures and what we expected our backseaters to be able to do with that weapon. Because on other missions, I've literally landed uh, near a border fort in Afghanistan, Paki border, landed at a border fort and looked out my door and there was a guy 25 feet away in the bushes with an AK-47. And he put his hands up, right? So we have very disciplined crew members in the back. Uh, but, you know, that's not, you got to, these guys have to be proficient from the second you start going on missions. We got to the point where the SEALs, when they operated with us, didn't need to put a sniper bird up. I hated the idea of the sniper aircraft because it was only two or three people. I wanted to have as many people as I could, yeah. right? In case something went south, they had more. Our door gunners were plenty proficient at being able to stop a vehicle with a uh, M60 and then the 240 when we got those. So we just, we, we knew what the Army wanted us for table training. And then we added our table 10, which is kind of command directed. And we made it as realistic as possible. We expected our crew members to be able to miss civilian targets, obviously to get to an enemy combatant target. And, but that took, you know, hours on the range and training. And then we tiered our guys. I mean, not everybody was the same. So we based people's tiering system, uh, tier one, two, and three based on their competency. And that paid huge dividends. So we wouldn't have a junior crew chief on a mission like that. Yeah. Is that a change that, um, that was made within the cab? Yes. Yeah. And, and over think, time, is there a mechanism yeah, for the, for that to sort of those lessons learned to be applied at, in, in other cabs and other aviation units? Absolutely. So that's part of, uh, so it starts. So the center of Army's lessons learned, they got a whole white paper on it. Uh, the national training center out at, uh, Fort Irwin. So when we went out there, the next time we went out there to train up for the next appointment, we brought those things up to them. And then that cadre started to kind of teach that as different, a, a different way of um, 
but you know, provide a different solution to a problem that could be out there. Right. So, sure. I mean, it's not, you I mean, you got to have a building block. You teach somebody that's never shot a weapon before you start with the basics, but where really what's important is that advanced skill. So, you know, building a table based on that, you know, like our crew chiefs had to be accurate while we were traveling. We didn't want to hover anymore. That was the reason I probably hovered. And I think, you know, I, I thought about it when we we're done with the mission. It's like, man, because all the other deployments I've been on, I would have never done it that way. I would have just continued to, maintain speed, making it much harder for that guy on the ground to track my aircraft, been at a steeper angle, carried my speed and felt confident that my crew chief could still take care of that threat. But the way we trained was take off nice, you know, 45 degree angle, shoot targets, transition to a nice, easy, that's not the way you're flying. So if you don't put your crew chiefs through that and have them actually put rounds down range to see how accurate or inaccurate they are, there's no basis for them or you as a leader or them as the operator of the weapon to feel confident or comfortable doing that. So, so why, why was the training, I mean, like that in the first place, why was that a, essentially a, a, tr a shortfall in training that needed to be correct? Sure. So I think, you know, when we look at the, you know, what we're training for and what that weapon was designed for is area suppression, mm -hmm. right? But it, it, it's, it doesn't have to be like, I don't need it to be an area suppression weapon when there's a person 25 feet outside of my helicopter, that's got a weapon. I need it to be a point and shoot target weapon. Sure. Right. And, and we immediately found that out while we were flying around that the rounds that you, if you were going to actually pull that trigger and you met all the ROE requirements that had to be accurate right off, the, you couldn't get away with just spraying bullets. Um, and if it was a guy that had a suicide vest on, he doesn't care if you're shooting around him. You need to shoot that person. Right. So it, it got we knew it only because there were so many close encounters with with individuals that it became a requirement that we had to have like the next level. We weren't comfortable with, hey, you got 40 percent of your rounds on target. No. And we didn't need you to spray a bunch of bullets if you didn't need to. We needed you to have a very specific purpose. And then when you pointed your weapon at what it was, then the outcome was, it wasn't always guaranteed, but there was a high probability that that weapon engagement was going to be successful. So that took a lot more effort. It's easy to say, I'm just going to go from A to B, but that's like when you're doing an air assault, I'm going into an LZ, I'm, a, you know, I'm putting in a hundred ground pounders, I, you know, I've got 10 aircraft going into an LZ and then somebody engages me from the woods. I'm just, at that point, I'm, I'm just trying to suppress that. But we started working with small teams, ODA, you know, other special operations groups, and that wasn't the case. I mean, you were responsible for eight guys in the back. And if somebody popped up at an inopportune time, you had to be able to fix that problem immediately and not like spray bullets and pray that you could get away in time. Yeah. So it's a little sure. different. Yeah. You know, I'm curious about your three months into the deployment when this happens. Had you flown enough uh, in this area? You, you know, you said, you, you know, you're flying through valleys. Was, were the valleys familiar? Are you, you know, are you driving? Is it like, you know, the first time you drive in a city, everything is new, but you keep driving there for a couple of months and pretty soon you recognize landmarks and everything. Did you, could you kind of sort of navigate based on the terrain or, or not? Yeah. So that's a great, Afghanistan is probably the easiest place to, to navigate off of because it's got real terrain and what's on your map is what you're currently looking at. When you have a 3,000, 5,000 foot ridge line or mountaintop, I mean, that just sticks out and everything's up a valley floor, but we, we weren't operating up in those valleys that often. Okay. And in around Kandahar, 
10 miles, 20 miles around Canhart, you kind of knew everything that was out there. You knew the ground forces that were out there, what sectors, what their boundaries were. Um, but once we started venturing out a little bit, it was unfamiliar, but it was easy to navigate. Like I knew where we were, you know, you look at the compass, I'm heading north. I know Kalat's out the left door somewhere. And I know I'm operating within, you know, 15 miles of my nearest far up. I'm, you know, 80, 90 miles north of Kandahar. You, you, you basically had that idea where you were. Okay. Um, yeah, working the border sometimes got a little tricky because of how, you know, where you were operating with the border forts and then Pakistan's like, you know, 10 feet yeah. on the other side. Yeah. The, um, you know, you described flying around that corner and you see yeah. all these, you know, armed military age males out in the open who immediately, yeah. you know, run into the clots, which I think is, you know, probably a pretty natural human instinct for survival when you see, when you see helicopters yeah. coming in, yeah. um, did they, in your experience, um, did they either at that time or did they later develop the enemy forces? I mean, yeah. did they develop kind of an intuitive understanding of which aircraft posed a greater threat? Did they run a little bit more when they saw certain aircraft than others? Um, you know, did they, did they know that a Black Hawk is able to, you know, turn 90 degrees and, and bring some firepower to bear? So I don't think they thought that as much. They've all, they were always um, cognizant of the Apache helicopter and then later deployments were able to pick up. Uh, we used to fly the air hammer. So we'd have an interpreter in the back and we were just drawing all the signal data in mm -hmm. these valleys and between the Apache helicopter and the Kiowa, the little OH-58 um, Delta, sometimes we call it the Bumblebee, but <laughs> they were super cognizant of those aircraft had some fangs, be it the 30 millimeter cannon, the 50 cal machine gun or the rockets or the hellfires. So they were always jibber jamming about that. And they really didn't think much about the Blackhawks. I mean, listen, listen to the feedback you get over the, the cell phones, but they were always, you know, Hey, the Blackhawks are here. Look, watch for the Apaches. Yeah. So, you know, they were cognizant of that. They did. Uh, I think by the end of our deployment, obviously they communicate back and forth with each other. Um, so there, there was times where we would fly near a village and, you know, you know, some people have weapons there. I mean, it's just, I mean, you're in Afghanistan, I get it. Yep. Uh, but they, you know, they hear the helicopter and that, that weapon would be on the ground. Right. So that was just, you know, they kind of, they got word that we were actively moving around and searching things like that. And if, you know, you couldn't just point at uh, a weapon at a Blackhawk and, and, you know, not maybe pay the price for, for doing that. So, yeah. Sure. The, um, you know, I, I want to ask you kind of, and, and one more question about as all of this is going off, you know, you described it as, you know, essentially a ton of craziness that's going on when, when you, when the helicopter took rounds and you've got these sensors going off and, and, and you said, um, you know, you, you knew that the plane was still flying and, and everything. How are you, how are you sort of triaging this bombardment of information? Is that something that you train on uh, yes. to be able to know, Hey, I don't need to worry about that light right now. I can worry about that later, but this thing right here, I've got to get figured out or we're going down or, you know, how do, how do you sort of, how do you sort of manage that process? Yeah. So that is all, that was all about training. I mean, so I mean, even having a conversation with some of the more senior pilots when we got back and they were, and rightfully so we're, we're a bunch of type A personalities and we like to AR each other and question each other. And if you don't have thick skin in this branch, you're probably in the wrong branch because people are just going to question everything you do. And, you know, some of the guys were asking, you know, why didn't you do X, Y, and Z? And it's like, the first thing I look at is my rotor system. 
All right, so I got a uh, indicator on the aircraft if my rotor is still doing the right thing on my instrument instruments. So all three of those, both engines and my rotor were all good. So the aircraft was flying itself. Um, so I knew I had enough time to be, able, and I had a place where I could have plopped the aircraft down to land it if things started to go really south. But none of my pressures, my oil pressure, transmission pressure, you know, as long as I have a rotor system, I'm, I'm going to, the aircraft's still going to go. So those are the, and those aren't even on the caution panel. I mean, I'm just looking at my, my tree that's got my engine tree, my power tree, looking at that going, okay, everything is upset. This is not an immediate get this thing on the ground right now, shut the aircraft down. I've got some time to assess what's going on. So that's the first place I looked and I've been taught that since day one, you know, some guys, I mean, and when I taught, cause I'm an instructor pilot by nature, when I would teach how to go through emergent procedures with young aviators, I mean, I would tell them that hey, this is the first thing you got to look at and this will dictate how quick of a response. Cause a lot of people, I call it rushing to failure. They see a bunch of lights, their brain will focus on one light and they're, they're, they get fixated on that and everything else goes away. Well, that may not be the most important thing you should be looking at at that time. So I knew I had a little bit of time to kind of triage what's going on. I could hear the aircraft being hit. So I knew something was going on and I could see that where my hydraulic system had been compromised, but I have three of them. So through training, I knew I still had some stuff, but what I, I wasn't in the, in the three to five seconds that I was doing all this, you know, I didn't pick out the trim because that's not that important. I could fly all day without the trim. Had I caught the trim light, I probably wouldn't have let go of the site. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and just started jetting forward like a crazy person. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I knew what I had to do. And uh, but that's all training. And it's got to be, you know, one of the things I kind of wrote down is it's got to be realistic training. That we we got to do tough and realistic training with our you know, I learn better when it's an emotional event. It could be a positive emotion or a negative emotion. It doesn't matter. Um, and as leaders out there, we've got to put our soldiers in a position where they kind of feel the weight of the responsibility of why it's important to train, why it's important to be competent. Um, you know, had I not gone through the training that I went through uh, and had some great, you know, instructor pilots when I was growing up, you know, that, that outcome could have been completely different, you know. And I, I see what happens when, when, when folks don't trade properly and don't have a solid foundation and how to quickly assess what's the most important thing and then base your next decision off that. So you started flying uh, in the Army in the 90s. Now, after almost 20 years of, of combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, have you seen a, a change in the aviation community in terms of that r sort of realism of training? Yeah, I think our simulators have gotten better. I know there's been a huge push at the aviation branch. Uh, started with uh, Lieutenant General Lundy when he was the branch CG, mm -hmm. and then it carried on with my my boss when I worked down there, uh, General Gaylor, and then now uh, General Francis. Um, yeah, we called it defrag in the hard drive way back in the day when I was flying with uh, Colonel Lundy, my brigade commander. I said. Uh, I, I was flying with him. Yeah, I, I got him up in the UH-60. He liked to fly the aircraft. It was a lot faster and than his 58. And I don't know what he did. He said something to me, and I said, between you and uh, Paul, you guys will make a really good pilot because you both know half of what you need to know. Just kind of <laughs> joking. And he goes, Joe, why do I need to know any of that? Right? And it made me sit and think about what it is we were teaching our pilots to remember immediately. And it wasn't the right stuff. 
you know, it wasn't the immediate response type of things that we needed them to do. So there was a concerted effort to kind of defrag the hard drive and front load those types of um, that type of knowledge that it's got to be an immediate recall knowledge and immediate muscle memory type response to. And it's got to be right. That's what we wanted to train. All the other, I mean, if you can be a drop of oil through the hydraulic system, that's great. But what I need you to do when your aircraft's got 30 plus bullet holes is be able to assess what's going on with the aircraft and fly away and everybody in the aircraft survives. That's what I really need you to do. The fact that you can do all the other stuff, that's all nice. And I'll give you credit for that later. But if you can't do the basics and handle like an emergency procedure the, the right way, then we failed at teaching you the right stuff. So there was a huge effort to, to go back to that. And, and for guys like me that were brought up that way with some outlier IPs that said, hey, Joe, I don't need you to be an electron. I don't need you to be a drop of hydraulic fluid. I need you to be a good aviator. I took that to heart. And when I became an instructor pilot, that's what I taught it. So for me, it was just kind of a natural transition um, years ago to, hey, let's focus on what's the most important. You know, we, we talk about life-taking and life-saving skills. Fort Rucker, when you first go through flight school, is going to teach you life-saving skills, which is your life, your crew's life. Um, and then you, when you get out to your unit, you start to, you know, learn the life-taking skills and the responsibility associated with, if you're put in that situation, doing it right the first time, you know. So, yeah, had I not gone through some pretty tough training with some pretty mean, not real personable IPs, I, <laughs> I, that outcome, and I love them for it, right? They just... They were hard on me because they needed to be because it's not it's not about being my friend or hanging out with me. It was about making sure that when I got to the show or the Super Bowl that I was prepared to play. And uh, that's kind of what I went for with my whole career. You know, it's like I have a responsibility as your trainer or your leader or your commander to ensure I have prepped you for the game. If I haven't, I failed you. I don't all the other stuff is ancillary to that. My first responsibility is your training and your safety. Uh, what we do is inherently dangerous, but I've got to prep you and prepare you uh, to win. Because like the boss says, the super boss, hey, winning matters, and it does matter, right? And and so throughout that you know, that deployment and the other ones, there's there was plenty of engagements we had, and we were just uh, – some of it some was luck, right? I acknowledge that, but a lot of it was my crew members were better prepared and better trained than the enemy. And that, and that's what let us be successful. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. And it's one that I think, um, comes out pretty clearly in your story and, and within this sort of aviation context, but it's also clearly broadly applicable across, you know, all, branches, all disciplines within the army. And I think, so I think it's something that hopefully will resonate with a bunch of our listeners, um, regardless of, of, of what they do if they wear the uniform, uh, that it's something that they can, they can take to heart. So Joe, thank you so much for joining and, and, and sharing the story. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.